Hello and welcome to our first episode of the Journal of Isakos podcast in 2022. My name is Dr. Andreas Voss and together with Dr. Manos Briliakis, we're more than happy to have Dr. Robin Martin from the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Traumatology at the University of Hospital of Lausanne in Switzerland and Professor Roland Jakob, former chief of the Orthopedics Kantonsspital in Fribourg, Switzerland with us today. In this episode, we will talk about their recently published classic review of Kenneth Hampton Preedy on a method of resurfacing orthostatic knee joints in a journal of Isikos. Hi, Robin and Roland. Thank you for your time to join our podcast. So before we start, maybe you can tell us a few words about your clinical and scientific background. Well, if, if I can start, uh, I was overarched and then vice chairman at the orthopedic clinic of the Inselspital at the University of Bern until 1995. And then I moved as chief to the Kantonspital Fribourg. 50% uh, of our work there was, was trauma. First, I did in Bern shoulder and knee surgery. Then we split up and I was head of the knee and pediatric orthopedic unit. In the knee, my focus was on meniscal preservation with a known instrumentation for inside out uh, refixation. It was the PCL and posterolateral rotatory instability with the description of the reverse pivot shift sign. Later, with the development of a brace for conservative treatment of a fresh PCL tear. Finally, it was cartilage repair where we first uh, 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 advocated the use of collagen osteochondral grafting, again with the known instrumentation, the SDS by Centerpulse. After 2003, we left mosaic plastic and started with AMIC which was at that time the first marrow stimulation technique of the modern versions. Uh, and with this deep drilling, uh, we returned to a pretty uh, principle. Thank you. And uh, Robin? Um, yes, I will be a little bit more brief because I'm less, far less advanced than, than, than Rory Jacob is. I'm in charge of the, the knee surgery conservative knee surgery at the Hospital of Lausanne. Uh, we run a program here with uh, uh, three residents. Uh, we are um, doing a lot of uh, cartilage work, ligament reconstruction and osteotomies around the knee. And um, we met together with uh, Roy Jacob uh, uh, over the last years. Um, I invited him several times here at our hospital to practice surgeries with us. He teached me a lot. Uh, he shared with me his experience. And by going uh, through all the history of orthopedics with him, uh, we started to uh, raise the idea of uh, this uh, um, histor historical paper. Perfect. And Roland, what was your motivation for your classic review article? Well, I was uh, <clears throat> over the last uh, few years uh, vice chairman of the archives committee of ISACOS. And uh, in this function, I had proposed that members of the archive committee should consider writing classics. Uh, I was always intrigued uh, uh, that uh, one could uh, do uh, 
some highlighting of, of previous persons, uh, of historical uh, uh, happenings. And I was uh, especially intrigued uh, to uh, look a little bit in depth into the article uh, of Pretty, which in fact is no article, it's just an 11 line abstract. And that, uh, that intrigued me a lot. And uh, what was the life of a knee surgeon back in 1959 when this uh, abstract was published, Roland? Yes, uh, well, of course, sports medicine was not yet born. Uh, Pretty did not have a, an arthroscope. Meniscectomy was done open and probably there was no meniscal repairs done. Neither was there cartilage surgery other than open debridement done. One would certainly remove loose bodies diagnosed on x-rays from a big OCD. And there was plenty of rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis treated by either osteotomy or by fusion. And there was septic arthritis. So these were concentrated on the knee joint, probably uh, the, the pictures of the pathology and the uh, possibilities to treat at that time. But then mind that Pretty was of course a very broad orthopedic surgeon who had interests uh, in other fields. Thank you. Um, and um, Robin, how did Pretty develop his technique? Did he work up the historical literature of animal research on cartilage repair before 1959 or, or how did he proceed? Well, let's, uh, all the work that we did in this, uh, this paper was uh, trying to um, do kind of an immersion in, in the past and uh, try to put ourselves in the skin of, of Pridey. Um, it's, it's kind of difficult to be sure how he raised up that idea, but um, by doing some extensive uh, literature research uh, um, from back to, to the middle of the 18th century, we um, realized that the previous authors had already raised the idea that um, the wounds of the cartilage in which the bone was not broken or injured did not heal. And the first one who was uh, raised that idea was uh, Dr. Gussenbauer. He was a professor in Wien. And that was almost uh, 80 years before um, Pridey uh, presented his technique. Then in between, um, in, in, in between the, the, the First and the Second World War, there were a couple of animal studies that progressively have shown uh, that um, and confirmed that a wound of the underlying bone would lead to the formation of uh, fibrocartilage. And um, in, in this setting, uh, the first uh, uh, author we who seems to have presented that drilling of the subchondral bone would lead to the formation of fibrocartilage was chance uh, in the United States. So, um, what, what would suggest that um, Pridey was probably aware of all this is that when he presented his communication at the British Orthopedic Association, 
he really uh, was aware of the fact that he was generating fibrocartilage. He did not say hyaline cartilage, he said fibrocartilage. So he was aware that his technique was in a sense limited and that he was quite humble of what he was able to achieve. But he was aware of what he was able to achieve. So um, I would say that he had some idea of, of what was already going on since this publication had already been around for 30 years before he presented this technique. Very good. And interestingly, even back in 1959, osteotomy seemed to be very popularized and it got rediscovered or let's say repopularized in these days. Does this surprise you, Roland? Uh, Robin? Well, for, to answer this question, I must look a little bit at the, uh, at the persons who did osteotomies and popularized that technique. And in fact, in North America, uh, Coventry started to do valg valgus closing wedge osteotomies in 1960 with his first uh, article published on his first, I think, 35 cases in 1965. In France, in the same time, uh, Debert popularized the uh, opening wedge technique with publications in 1966, 72, and the major paper then by his pupil, uh, Ernie Gou, in 1987, where he put a lot of emphasis on, on planning and the results being dependent on how much one achieved in terms of correction, over or under correction. But in Great Britain, it was Jackson and Wow who wrote about osteotomies already in 1961, and Johnson, Little and Wow, published their biomechanics paper, again a classic in 1980. In Japan, Tommy Koshino published in 1969 on osteotomies, as did Joran Bauer, together with Insal and Koshino, they were both uh, fellows with, with Insal in the same year. And then Bauer, Joran Bauer brought the technique to Sweden. And then starting in the 80s and 90s, knee arthroplasty suddenly got in and slowly osteotomy was less performed until only in the last 15 years i would say it came back mainly in europe with uh, germany and switzerland and britain and italy with the birth of the poodle plate and later under the stimulus by ao with the tomafix plate only in the US, it has sort of a hard time to find its rebirth. And uh, among, I don't know if this has something to do uh, with a certain uh, hesitation to do open surgery by uh, sports medicine doctors. I don't really, really not understand why there is still a remarkable discrepancy and uh, why this rebirth has not really uh, taken place to the same extent as in the rest of the world in North America, or to say, not in North America, in the US. Perfect, thank you. And Robin, what impact did this publication have on our understanding of treating cartilage defects? Well, you know, the, the aim of this publication was certainly not to try to promote uh, uh, microfracture, microperforation, 
and to say that this technique would have um, a longer track record and then would be uh, more valid than another one. Our aim here was just to, to make an historical analysis of uh, where does the, the and where does the idea come from? How well, how did how did the, did the idea arise? And what was the, the historical historical background behind all this? Um, I think that's um, it's quite important for us sometimes to remember the past, and so that we are not, uh, in a certain sense, uh, committed to at some point uh, redo the history. Um, what I think we we learned here from from Pride is that. Um, despite, this, this, despite the fact that it was a very brief communication and that does not follow really the standards of the actual publication, he was pretty aware of what he was doing. He, mentioned, he, he shared with us an observation and he was very aware that he was producing only fiber cartridge with his micro perforations. And he was also aware that probably this was not going to be um, a permanent solution for the joint. And when you look at the publication, you was already aware on one of the, uh, the, the, um, the attendees of the convention asked him if osteotomy was necessary and would produce an additional benefits. He validated that um, question and said, yes, it is necessary. Micro, micro perforation of the subconvolume alone will not be sufficient. So um, this is probably why this technique has sustained the proof of time and the test of time. Since the beginning, we know that this is a way of regenerating a tissue that is probably going to degrade. But in addition to another procedure that might, might add um, some additional benefits to the techniques that were already uh, available at that time, osteotomies. Thank you. So even nowadays, we still uh, recognize his work because in uh, most of our departments, we use the term breedy drilling or breedy boring in the ger uh, German speaking part. So it still has his historical values even in, in our days today. So Roland, what would be your take home message from your article? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think uh, it, it shows me what was possible in these years may not be any more possible today to use uh, the clinical laboratory, the experimentation uh, by an individual orthopedic surgeon, which at that time was allowed. And there was room for observational studies. Today, uh, we have more difficulties to accept that and we know what it needs to bring a new technique into uh, utilization by a broader uh, audience. The fascinating thing of this person who had very provocative ideas, not only in Benicoy, is that in fact it needed only 11 lines and one person uh, signing underneath, not 10 co-authors, as it is often the case today, or for even a case report. And uh, this set the path uh, 
for a method that is utilized over the last 60 years, as Robin said. Roland and Robin, it was a really pleasure for, for me to interview you about this classic uh, review. And I think it will give our listeners a new insight in uh, historical um, handling of cartilage defects. Thank you once again for joining our podcast and hopefully we'll have you back uh, for another podcast with your next publication in the Journal of Ilagos. This was Associate Professor Dr. Andreas Voss from the University Hospital of Regensburg in Germany on behalf of the Journal of Isakos. We hope to have you back for our next episode. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the society or the journal.